It's election day, so let's look across the pond and do a Lady Diana special. Amanda, are you ready? I have never been more ready for a podcast in my life. Let's do it. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome to a Jam Session special. It's election day. Which just felt like a weird time to uh, dig in to like tabloids and celebrity news. So we're doing something a little special. Amanda, what's on tap today? It's Princess Diana Day. Yes, it is. It's it's the day that I've been waiting for certainly all year and and possibly my whole life, depending on how you want to look at it. (laughs) Um, And we're doing this because... You brought The Joy of the Diana Chronicles by Tina Brown, a biography that I have read far too many times, into your life recently. Um, and the reason you did that is obviously because season four of The Crown is starting in a couple weeks and it is the first Diana season. So a lot of this material will be relevant. And we're also doing this today because if you are listening to this in a week, it might still be relevant and maybe you need an escape from some other things in the world. So that's what this is intended. That's what this is. Bookmark it. You know, come back to it later when you need a podcast. This is evergreen because Princess Diana died in 1997 and we have been kind of, uh, I think as as celebrity minded people living in the shadow of that. Like honestly, since it happened, probably. Um, Yes. I'm actually curious where where were you when Princess Diana died? Do you remember? I remember vividly. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, in my aunt Betty's bedroom, and it broke a late Saturday night here in the U.S. I it was for personal reasons that have nothing to do with Princess Diana. It was one of kind of like the worst weekends. It has nothing to do with my aunt Betty either, who I love very much. <laughs> um, but it was like it was Labor Day weekend, I believe, or maybe yeah. it was the weekend before. And the trip was not going well. And for whatever reason, I was allowed to stay up probably to watch Saturday Night Live. And the news broadcasts came in. Um, I I believe they didn't broadcast until her death was confirmed, but I could be wrong about that. I was what? I was 13. I had just turned 13. I was in Cape Cod. I was watching the U.S. Open with my mom. Michael Chang was playing. Love it. Um. And it was like a news break. The Princess Diana died. We also like never used to watch television on Cape Cod. So it was like random that we knew so quickly. Um, It's a pretty like defining news moment for me personally. Mm -hmm. Like I like I think as a kid, like news breaks, you know, I mean, it'll be weird for this generation of kids is there's so much news happening every day and they have the Internet. But like for us in the late 90s, like news was had like a trickle down effect. Like you kind of like had to be told something and like news Mm -hmm. breaks didn't really happen in the same way. So it was definitely one of the first like global events that I experienced live. Absolutely. Me too. And that includes that first news break, that entire week of coverage and ultimately the funeral, which I remember. um, Me too. I I remember watching, I, I believe on a Saturday morning, that particular weekend, I, we were with my mother and I were with good family friends um, this was, it was a, it was a tumultuous time in my family life. So everyone is healthy and great now. So it was fine. But we were like, a lot of people were in our lives just being like, it's okay. And I, I do kind of think 
I was watching this thing and go very awry while also having like the confusion in my personal life. And it like really imprinted on me. But the other thing about this was like, by 13, I was reading People Magazine, loved People Magazine. I was like somewhat aware of news events. You know, I like knew who the president was. I knew what a presidential election was. I like, but you know, I was 13. And I can't say that I, as a 13 year old, was like, as engaged in the world as 13 year olds today seem to be, which is, um, all, all respect to 13 year olds today and all dismissal to 13 year old Amanda. But like this broke through for me in terms of just understanding that larger things happen in, in the world. And certainly also in terms of like just celebrity or notable deaths. And because, you know, when you're 10 and someone very famous dies, like, more often than not, you don't know who that person is. You're yeah. alive when they were like very um, famous, when they were important and you don't really understand the context. But I understood this context and I knew who this person was and I was following everyone else responding. And just in terms of like media and and certainly celebrity awareness, but also kind of international awareness, this was extremely influential for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Also, like um, I think for like Americans, our age, I, this is like, I keep referring to like Americans as a monolith, but I will just say, which is certainly is not, um, the other big news story about like a head of state and their marriage was Clinton. Right. So mm-hmm. you had in the U S like the Monica Lewinsky scandal and all, and like kind of all of that news. And then on the other side, you had the divorce of Prince Charles. And I, I feel like the concept of, of divorce in many ways, like came to me through under, through like an understanding of like the English monarchy. Cause my mom loves the English monarch, like monarchs, like she can name them all in order. So like the Henry, the eighth stuff, like knowing that's where the church of England started specifically for the purpose of divorce was like something I always knew about. And so right. then princess Diana and Charles's divorce and like the, um, triangulation as then later related to Camilla, like was something like I also like knew about, um, though they, they didn't get married until after she died. Correct. Correct. Yeah. 2005, right. 2005, almost 10 years later. Yeah. And so, but just like the concept of divorce is like definitely something that I knew about from Prince Charles and Diana. And it's just, it's just like such a, it's, it's just been fascinating now as an adult to like go back and try to like learn what was the contemporaneous opinion of Diana versus like, what do I remember from like my 11 year old mind? And I think that like a lot of people our age are doing that with her, especially because she's been invoked so much as Meghan Markle has gotten more famous. And so it's just been like a really fascinating study. And I have to be, have to say, I'm like quite surprised by a lot of what I've read and what I've learned. And it's been a real, it's been really interesting. Um, yeah, it's just been crazy. I completely agree. I think and I credit the the Tina Brown book, which I know I talk about so much on this podcast, <laughs> but I do really think in addition to reexamining Diana and maybe kind of giving those of us who were too young to really understand all the nuances or just, you know, like to really dig deep on like what's going on and picking up everyone's motivations. It gives us that context, but I think it also really does explain the new model of like celebrity and media consumption that came about in the eighties kind of with Diana and that the Diana phenomenon like sort of created, or certainly was like the largest representation of. And I think it creates a lot of the celebrity infrastructure that you and I like talk about every week on this podcast, or certainly like I mean, things have evolved, but that's where it starts. And to me, it's just also interesting because when you're like growing up with this media, you're not super analytical of it. It's just kind of like the way it is. And I definitely consumed a lot of things and um, had my brain shaped in certain ways because of everything that is described in the book. But to have a little distance from it and be like, oh, so that's why I, I think this or that's how I know about this was really instructive. And again, like I, I was not operating on that level as a teenager. No, me neither. So, um, I would say like my, my personal journey into learning more about Diana began with Diana, the musical, which is coming to streaming in 2021. And then I will just say, I've seen this next season of the crown. So that also like really propelled me forward and wanting to know more about Diana to like understand what I was watching. I think as 
events on television get closer to our lived experience, like a, a historical or dra- dramatized version, I feel more compelled to fact check where I'm just like, maybe I should go back and fact check seasons one, two, and three of the crown as well. But I'm just like, I, I just, as I was watching, I, um, had a real compunction to look up many of the things that are dramatized. Cause I was just like, I didn't know about this or is this real? What's the space on all of this stuff. And so I think there's just like, there's, there's so much to unpack related to like how Diana is remembered. I, one thing I just wanted to touch on before we get into like maybe some specific Diana facts that I was not aware of. I think that one thing about the Diana Chronicle is like, if you don't want to read a full Diana 500 page book, which fine, you might not want to, I would just say like, there's a chat, like the third chapter or so kind of explains the media landscape in Britain before kind of, and, and there's a, there's a real line of demarcation and that's like before and after Rupert Murdoch. And mm-hmm. It's such an incredible distillation of media history that I think still holds and like the influence of media and understanding government and celebrity. And I was really blown away by that. And I think that like there's a there was a kind of a perfect storm of um, Rupert Murdoch's type of media coverage taking hold at the same time that Diana was coming up because he he moved to the UK and bought up some newspapers in the late 70s and they got married in 1981. And so that like really set the stage for lady die mania, I think. And that's like one thing I definitely did not put together. Like though, maybe I knew some of those random facts. Yes. And Tita Brown is uniquely positioned to be able to write about that change in particular because her husband was uh, Sir Harry Evans, who was one of the newspaper editors who kind of went to war with Rupert Murdoch and the changes that he wanted to implement in newspapers. And uh, depending on how you want to interpret it, kind of lost. I mean, Harry Evans went on to have like an incredibly illustrious career. He died recently. I recommend some of the obituaries about him. In addition, it's like pretty sad because he and Tina Brown seem to have like a lovely working journalist relationship uh, and like wrote about each other with great affection. But she was there for a lot of the Murdoch battles on the on the um, the front lines. The other thing is that before Tina Brown became the editor in chief of Vanity Fair, which was another major instrument in the eighties of, you know, redefining how we talk about celebrity. She was the editor of Tatler, which if you're not familiar with Tatler is just kind of the magazine for aristocrats in England. And it really is like the, the turnip toffs that we talk about jokingly as being like Kate Middleton and Prince William's friends, but that they existed in the seventies and they were a little less self-aware and were just willing to be in this like very, silly, entertaining magazine. And so Tina Brown has like a very unique level of access to this world at a time where this world is going from like totally like exclusive and inaccessible to um, being media curious and thus being willing to be documented in a way that it really hadn't before. That's a great segue into like who was Diana at the time of the wedding, which I feel like it's Mm -hmm. kind of like for me was the least understood time as a, like a, as a celebrity it was kind of different. Although I will say like, I've been trying to like understand, learn. I still feel like I don't quite know who she was at the time of her death. Like I, I feel like that's like a, a confusing person to me. Um, but I guess like the first thing I didn't know, and I will say the Diana musical really brought this into focus for me at first was I didn't re- realize at the time of her celebrity when, when she first became famous, that there was such a huge emphasis on her virginity. And I also didn't realize there that she was 20. And like, I didn't yeah. understand that like, this was like a bit part of the excitement was like Charles had found his virginal bride and it's really, really weird. Like that's just like such a weird piece of this story that in some ways is the most outdated to me. It's nuts. It, and <laughs> it really was, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'll be honest. I don't want to generalize like for the entire United Kingdom. I don't know whether they were like, yes, he found a virgin. Like that's what people were singing on the streets. But there was this understanding from the establishment that he couldn't marry anyone who quote, like had a past, which meant a virgin. And so like Camilla Parker Bowles, who, you know, you see in season three of the crown, he has like our early seventies relationship with, and is clearly invested in was like a non-starter. She was like never allowed to be in consideration because she had had sex. Also, just keep in mind, like London in the late 60s, early 70s, it was definitely a time of sexual uh, expression. 
Um, so it was kind of like s- slim pickings in terms of like, quote, eligible, quote, virgin brides, which is insane. <laughs> Again, th- these are the standards that they're applying completely feels to, like outdated to the point of you can't even believe that they were talking about it. And I think Tina Brown says at the time that like, even in the late seventies, it felt absolutely ridiculous. And yeah. like what, one more way in which the Royal family was just like out of step and yeah. hadn't really caught up. Yeah. And you know, luckily while Kate Middleton's been subjected to a lot of um, Royal rules, I think like just the fact that, that the um, photos of her, from the fashion show at St. Andrews where like, we're not a deal breaker is like, it's sadly an indication of progress. So I guess we should accept that. But like, that was just like very shocking to me. I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I just like, it never occurred to me that like Prince Charles had was like needed to have a virgin bride. I was just like, wait, what? Like, who cares? It's really baffling. I like, if, if you think about like the other things you've seen or the crown, of like um, Margaret not being able, being allowed to marry Captain Townsend. Was that his name? I think it mm-hmm. was like, but, but it's because he was a divorcee. And if you think about like the kind of original sin, which is the the abdication because of a woman. Um, yes. Be- An American woman. Uncle David wanted to marry Wallace Simpson, also a divorcee, but Coded in there, what they mean by divorcee is like a person who's had sex with someone else. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, that's ultimately because they're, you know, grounding it in like the quote Church of England and what it's teaching and all that stuff. But it's just kind of like a bunch of people being like, you can only have sex with one person, which is just not very weird. And even I think by the late 70s, though I wasn't around, seemed wildly outdated. <laughs> definitely did. Um, and so then along those lines, like another thing that I didn't know was that Diana, I mean, I didn't know she was 20 when they got married. I don't, I think it's just because we were kids when she was famous. So I was like, she's an adult. And that was like the end of it. You know, I didn't like, she's not. Yeah, but she definitely wasn't. She was 20. She didn't go to university. And one thing that a lot of, um, I think, uh, writing about Diana that was critical and we'll, you can get to the kind of media depictions in a bit. Um, like repeatedly state was that she, there was a huge education gap between Charles and Diana. And that like, I didn't know that she was like basically considered like dumb. Right. Diana, the dim as she like calls herself. (laughs) Um, and she was, I think very self-conscious about it and made a lot of jokes about it. And it was kind of one of, one of her many insecurities. I mean, I, I think part of it, if you learn about her childhood, she gets sent to the boarding school, which Tilda Swinton also went to, just so you know. And I think, you know, yeah. Tilda Swinton grew up to be like a very interesting and accomplished person, but it's portrayed as like one of the boarding schools for parents who don't really care about their daughter's education, which is that that betrays like a lack of investment um, and a lack of belief in the importance of an education. And then, you know, she won like a prize for keeping hamsters. So that is just kind of where her interests were. But you can sense that there wasn't a lot of emphasis put on academic, at least education. And then she gets thrown into, I I think Prince Charles uh, is portrayed frequently as uh, maybe too academically minded and a little eggheaded and has um, gets lost in his, in his books and his weird influencers uh, not influencers of Instagram, but of the, of the, um, like Winston Churchill, the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose Instagram influencers are, uh, influencers of a different mind, but (laughs) it's like, it's not a good intellectual match, right? They're operating on different wavelengths. And, uh, I think everyone looks down on her a little. Yeah. And I, I don't really have an opinion on like if that's a proper opinion, like to look down on her or not. But I, 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 I don't know. I think that I actually like, I think in Diana, as she developed into an adult before she died, it seems like she was unknowable. It seems like she, like all that was really knowable about her was her misery and like just her, like her unhappiness and loneliness. And that clouded so much of who she came to be as a public person. Yeah. And I, I mean, I do think she experiences a level of fame that just completely changes who you are as a person, because yeah. like, how could it not? Your experience is so singular. And it's specifically her experience was so singular because there is 
quite literally no one else going through it in the way that she's going through it. I mean, think about there is a real difference between like having always lived as a member of the royal family and with that level of scrutiny and those expectations and all of the things that seem just completely ridiculous to us, like having to marry a virgin. But she, I think she lived by those rules for whatever reason, but you know, she was also on the outside and then you get kind of brought into this way of life and it's not accommodating. And then the only thing you have are the tabloids. And it definitely seems like that was also something she was good at. One thing that I think gets really undersold is how, um, how media savvy she was and how much like innate understanding of the tabloids and, and celebrity and that as like a power source, which I think is often said in a negative way. And sometimes we even say that condescendingly on this podcast, but I I do not mean it that way. It's a skill. It's a, it's a, it is. um, Let's talk about that. It's a real level of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So it seemed like she also from a pretty early period when the, when she felt like isolated and unhappy, basically from the jump in this marriage that she turned to the media as like confidants essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the primary ways that I think people know, like a lot of gossip about Diana and Charles and their marriage and stuff is from like a few landmark interviews. Like one is with Andrew Morton, where she was like feeding him information. Right. Mm -hmm. Did they do a sit down? So they do it through an intermediary and you can buy an edition of the Andrew Morton biography where, um, a transcript of her interviews is like kind of in the center where all the pictures are. But what happens is, um, so that she can deny that she ever spoke to Morton, he would send questions to a friend and a friend would interview her and tape the recordings and then take the tapes back to Andrew Morton. Right. Now she would like do some kind of like funny, like, like burner account or something like send yeah. answers that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then she did the Martin Bashir interview, which there's video of. So that's yes. like, so that is probably the most like potent primary source of Diana. Correct. Cause you can hear her speaking. And I think one thing that once you start watching all of this and reflecting on is how little you actually heard her voice. Yes. You heard her speak. Uh, we're so familiar with the images and I think we're familiar with the personality that was constructed around her often with her participation, as you pointed out, but you don't actually interact with her, hear her talk very often at all. And so that panorama interview that you are speaking about is fascinating and a key text in a lot of ways, but one of them, it's just her talking. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a really, really important point at the moment because Emma Corrin is this young actress who's going to be playing Diana in season four of the crown. She's been doing press with, um, Emerald Fennel who plays Camilla and my man, Josh O'Connor, who of course plays a, a two lovable Prince Charles. And I, it's funny you say that because I don't, I can't really like summon Diana's voice in my head. Cause I'm not like a Dianaologist, you know, like, and I haven't watched, I, I've seen pieces of the Martin Bashir videos, but like not in a long time. And so Emma Corrin's voice, I know for myself is going to become like the way I hear Diana's voice. And like when I read Diana quotes and stories about her, I know that I'm, though I will see in my head, like pictures of the actual Diana, I will hear Emma Corrin. And that's like a really weird dichotomy to be aware of. Cause I, I, it, this is just part of like, what's so I think titillating about the crown is it is taking on people that are currently alive. And so for, for obsessive viewers like me, and I think you like they're well, different, you know, more about the Royals than I do, but like the people who play them supplant the actual living humans that they're de- depicting in some ways. And it's a real, it's a real trip. Like I think of Olivia Coleman as the queen. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is true of everybody. I think you can't help it because these are all figures who don't speak very often. Yeah. And that's the funny thing about Chance Charles, his, vo- his accent, his voice are like actually really beautiful, dulcet tones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just funny. Josh O'Connor is actually not like that, I would say. But anyway. Um, but, you know, part of the reason for the fact that we don't hear them that often is is uh, outlined in an episode of season three of The Crown. Remember when they do the documentary about the very, royal family? Very wrong, yeah. Philip is like, I got this. I know how to make the people like us and that does not work out. And it is true that that you can't find that documentary on YouTube. It's in a vault somewhere. It has like never been seen again because they realized too late that like mystery and kind of like this, the symbolism is what's going for them. And like when they become people, 
then it's kind of open season on them as people, which is what has happened for the next 30 years. But, you know, we're all humans too. So you have so much curiosity about these people and then like really compelling fictional versions of them are like giving life and like showing you what it's like behind the scenes. Of of course, I'm sure everyone has started thinking about them this way. That's why I think ultimately, at least for the first three seasons, I think the crown has been like the best PR possible for the queen herself. I suspect season four is going to be a bit of a shift, but I haven't seen it yet. I'm saving it for when I really need it. So don't tell me. I won't say anything. I think yeah. I just want to just want to compliment myself. I think I've done a really good job keeping my, my crown my crown opinions you're, inside. You're re- you've been really supportive and respectful of my process, and I do appreciate it. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm here for you. I don't want to ruin Thank it. You. Like when you Thank love you. a TV show and someone ruins it, it's so fucking annoying. Just like yeah. let me live, let me enjoy this yeah. one thing. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Um, anyway, Emma Corrin, I think does a lot of, well, just, it's just interesting. She's in a position that I think none of the other actors are in. Obviously Diana is like much more famous. Would you say at this point, Diana is beloved widely? I think so. I think probably most people have not done the level of (laughs) re-examination that you and I have, which is honestly why I think season four is going to be fascinating because a lot of people watch the crown. And I think a lot, I, I haven't seen it, but I have seen a trailer and I do know that Diana and young Diana is going to be portrayed very differently than, um, the way that Diana was portrayed after her death, which is only natural, right? Because the way that she died was so sudden and so tragic. And Wear seatbelts, everybody. Just always wear a seatbelt. I mean, it, it was shocking. And watching her sons, you know, walk behind her her coffin in the parade was I, like horrible, a searing memory in my mind. Uh, but kind of just made the tragedy of it real for so many people. And so I think just kind of her goodness is what has been focused on. And obviously, also the the narrative of there were three people in this marriage, as she says in that panorama interview, and that she never really got to find the happiness in her love life that I think a lot of people wanted for her. Um, so it seems like it's become canon now, like, or just not even canon, but like the final word 
on Prince Charles is that he was always in love with Camilla and Diana was a diversion. And I think that's just sort of like the accepted narrative. And that's one thing where I am like, oh, okay. So this was always the case. Everyone always thought this, this is not something that's been like pieced together over time. Like you go back to the beginning, like the Camilla piece was always there. And like, as you saw in season three of the crown, Charles's uncle, Lord Mountbatten, wonderfully, wonderfully played by Charles Dance. No, is that his name? It's Charles Dance, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. wonderfully played by Charles Dance and um, the Queen Mother is that they like basically conspire to have Camilla get married to Andrew Parker Bowles um, while Charles is off on a, a tour in the military. And so like this kind of was always, and, and that seems to be like at least somewhat true. There's a lot of, there's some new stories that that uh, depict that as well. Um, but like the funny thing is the other part of like the official record that seems like everyone just like agrees upon is that Camilla loved Andrew Parker Bowles and Charles mm-hmm. was not like, Camilla was at the center of Charles's life, but Charles was not at the center of Camilla's. And like, that's, that's a really fascinating piece of this that I've kind of come to learn is that Charles, I think was seen for me in my memory as a kid was like, that was like the clear villain. And I do think that a lot of um, the writing about Diana and the reexamination has indicated to me that like, while most of the Royal family, I think in real life are just snob, snobby assholes um, typified by Prince William at the moment. Um, Charles was actually like a pretty, he, he was that nuanced, more nuanced than maybe we were led to believe in the nineties. And, um, also had like a pretty unhappy childhood that led him to be the adult that he is. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that there was no nuance of his particular position, which is that, as you said, he was born into a family in a particular position. And I don't think that they're old fashioned in a lot of ways as yeah as, uh, discussed in the whole, you must marry a virgin. (laughs) I mean, it's just like, if that's the message that you're getting from your parents, some other things are going on here. Uh, and you know, you think about it, he's in his seventies now and just is at the beck and call of his mother and has like no purpose of his own and never has his entire life because the whole purpose of his life is waiting for his mother to die, which is a whole other thing, which is very strange. And Yes, that he doesn't have as much uh, freedom of choice in certain ways as other people do, though, again, just like a uniquely privileged person. So it's a gray area, of course, like everything else. I think he got a little unlucky in love. And then I think he probably, along with the rest of the royal family, was not as responsible as he should have been in bringing someone else into the royal family. But I agree that in the 90s, he was just like the cad. And also there was this added level of no one really understood. Um, Diana was so much cooler and more beautiful and more beloved and more accessible in the public eye. And Charles was kind of stiff and awkward. And people didn't really understand the dynamic of him not wanting her. Which it's obviously more complicated than that. But when it gets reduced into, you know, People magazine covers, that was the narrative and it it made it very easy to dismiss him without a second thought. Yeah. And I don't think she ever really wanted him. I mean, I think that she wanted it. One thing that also seems pretty clear is that she wanted like the life of a princess, but didn't want this princess life that you, and that's one of the reasons they got divorced. Yeah. There's one thing in the Tina Brown book about the Charles and Camilla relationship she adheres to the belief that most people do that Camilla just was really in love with Andrew Parker Bowles, who is apparently quite the dashing individual. Um, (laughs) but I think it's, it's, it's after that. And when she's going through all the other people that like Prince Charles was maybe going to marry in the late seventies. Um, and she points out that anyone who is like, anyone who would be savvy enough or who would have been a good fit and been able to take on that role was smart enough to know that they didn't want to do it because like marrying into the Royal family means that your, you know, life is run by a bunch of old men with mustaches, as they say, and you make a lot of nutty decisions. So to be the type of person who's like, yeah, I want this job. Yeah. Um, maybe you don't totally know what you're getting into, or maybe your priorities are slightly different. Um, and in the case of a 19 year old, it's, it's probably, a lot of the former. Yeah. I, I think the other thing I 
I like didn't know. And I learned, and I'm curious what you think about this is it seemed like there while she was charming, um, what's essentially the paparazzi who made a lot of money off of her. It seemed like more serious journalists and entertainment reporters didn't really like her and didn't really like care for her. And I, I thought that came, came through pretty strongly in the Tina Brown Chronicles. It wasn't like a personal judgment, but it just sort of seemed like she was an excavation of this character in a way that betrayed like a level of disdain. And I was really surprised by that. And I'm curious if you have the same take on the book and have the same impression. I honestly think that she is in some cases a bit more generous to Diana in terms of Diana's abilities and talents than like other contemporaneous coverage. But I think you're right that there is some remove. And I think you're right to identify that a certain class of journalist um, had real disdain or just, you know, thought that this was a sideshow. And in a lot of ways, I think it is the same way that celebrity is like misunderstood or dismissed um, in in 2020 to, to everyone's peril that people think it's fluffy or people think it's, you know, gutter media. And often it is. And there are a lot of people that you and I don't like talking about on this podcast because we just like don't want them in our lives and we don't want to give them any more airspace. And there are a lot of distractions, um, not limited to, you know, but, and there are a lot of distractions also including like much of our political system right now, which we said we wouldn't get into, but I, I, sorry. So, but, but some people don't take it seriously. Like some people still think that being good at celebrity is just, is ditzy and fluffy and, or like a scourge on society. And it may be a scourge on society. I like, I'm honestly willing to, to accept that. And we talk about that often, but I do also think, you know, celebrity is how the public understands people. And that is, has been the animating force of like history and societies for like, as long as we have them. I mean, you were talking about how Henry VIII's divorce started the church of England, but that's like, that's just celebrity of the yeah. what, 16, of the 16th 1500s. century. I mean, yeah, that's what it is. And we have human instincts and we're curious about other people. And there are people who understand that and know how to manipulate that more than others. I understand thinking that's beneath you, but I think that that's just not acknowledging reality sometimes. I, I agree with you. And as you were saying that, I realized that like the totality of the Diana coverage reminds me more than any other celebrity of Kim Kardashian of mm-hmm. like the really wide spectrum of like love and disdain and um, commodity and commercial power. Like, mm-hmm. Also, I could, based on what I do know about Diana now, I could see her doing like a lot of this like crazy, like just luxurious, uh, out of touch shit that the Kardashians are doing, like not limited to this ridiculous trip in, in the, where are they? The Indian ocean right now? They're like in Tahiti or something, right? I can't, I are can't they back? Track. I don't know. But it just I was kind of like, reminds me of this. the Royals going to Moustique, right? Like that's so out of touch and so unnecessary. And they're just like, okay, Prince Margaret, she just goes to her private Island whenever she wants. And then people show up and whatever. Like, I, I think that there is like, that, that's like actually the closest connection I feel like I can make just in terms of like public perception and the reality being like a pretty mixed bag of, of, of a human and of a persona. Yeah. And I think just in terms of, you know, we talk a lot about history and and politics and, um, I was just watching the American president because Mm. we did that for rewatchables and, and that's all about whether, and it's about a lot of things, but one of the points is whether the president should get in a quote character debate by which should he talk about his life and his personality as opposed to his policies. But personality. Such a great and movie. I'm really excited for you to, to I, talk about that on the rewatchables. It's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I like, I saw it four times in theaters at the age of 11. Um, but it's this idea of, can you divorce, you know, personality and personal life from, from a leader and should you? And I, the answer to should is very complicated, but can you more often than not, the answer is no, like people vote, people make decisions, people understand leadership as much in terms of personality and character as they do actions. And so that is a lot of what's being put on the Royal family. And a lot of the ways in which the Royal family has kind of redefined itself as they have had literally all 
governing power taken away from them, which let me state for the record, that is good. It, it would be absolutely insane for the United Kingdom to actually be governed by a hereditary monarchy. I, like if you sit down and think about the position that these people play in society, which is just like you got born to a family. And so now it's, it, it, I guess I'm really American because it makes absolutely <laughs> no sense. I just am like, this is just ludicrous. But if you think about it as a they as as they have repositioned themselves in terms of being like, well, will be the national identity that you're invested in. And then there's a separate place for governing. That to me is like very interesting and as, a, as an idea and kind of a diagnosis attention that we're always dealing with in terms of um, politics and leadership, but also just puts them in such a singularly weird place. And it's just a fascinating sociological experiment in terms of, okay, if you're going to be the national identity, then what is a national identity? What do we value? What are you putting forth? Like what are people investing in? Uh, and it's some weird stuff. Yeah. I, it it really is. And like, um, I think, you know, earlier you said like, there's a real difference between being bred for this and being born for this. And the, you know, that, that separation is, is absolutely huge. And, and I think, um, one thing the crown does do, cause it's the eighties is talk a lot of, is without being direct, talk a lot about nationalism. And I think that like, it's, it's a really, um, you know, also of course the eighties is the decade of Margaret Thatcher played by Julian Anderson. Yes. And, and so there's just the minute of her in the trailers is amazing and chilling. I'll say no more. Um, but I, I think that like, like a lot of the celebrities right now, I think, and, and, you know, sort of like the Trump era and the Reagan era have some parallels as well. There's a lot to look back to at like a period time of, um, like wealth gaps that I think really applies in ways that are, we don't like often talk about because it's um, political and and deep, but it does suffuse like so much of what you see in celebrity. And, you know, I think that like, because Meghan Markle gets complimented for, for wearing like accessible brands, like indicates that there is like such a gap between luxury and accessibility that like for her to be wearing, you know, Rothy's shoes, which I just want to note are still expensive. Uh, like not railroad DSW are like, it's like a big deal. And I've just been thinking also a lot about, um, Harry and Megan versus Charles and Diana from what I know, because one thing that also becomes really clear from the coverage of Diana is that from the beginning of her time as, as a celebrity, she was like a, a lone agent and, um, mm-hmm. she did not, she did not have a partner. She did not really have a refuge in the Royal family. I think that's partially why she turned to the press. Cause they were always there. And she was like, okay, well, you guys are always here. I'll talk to you. Um, and Harry and Meghan, true or not, have presented themselves as a united front. Meghan goes out of her way in their interviews now to like refer to her husband. And they really present themselves as a pair and a duo. And I find that to be actually like one of their most compelling refutations of the crown and the way that the monarchy does stuff. And, you know, I think like a lot has been made of also like how Philip was felt second or sort of like had to um, be inferior to his wife and like which plays into, of course, very paternalistic, um, views of marriage and gender roles, but like, there's just, there are not equal marriages in the monarchy. And I, I think that, that like really, it was hard for Diana, not even necessarily looking for equality. Cause I'm not sure she was, but like looking for like an ally. I don't, mm-hmm. I think she was looking for that. She didn't get it. And I, I think that's like the starkest difference between how Harry and Meghan are choosing to move forward versus how the rest of their family is doing it. I think that's really perceptive. And I also think that, it, you know, it's just, it's reductive almost, but I think also so important to, to understand how many of the decisions that Harry makes are influenced by the loss of his mother at the age of 12, um, in absolutely tragic circumstances after a life that I think was in a lot of ways held back by this institution that she married into and that, um, he is a part of. Well, I think another thing that is very similar between Meghan Markle and and Diana is that they are married into an institution that is still incredibly rigid and however much the royal family has tried to, quote, modernize, to use the crown terminology, it is still, like, inherently based on hierarchy. They are trying to preserve um, some sort of tradition and, you know, some sort of, like, incredibly outdated monarchical structure. And so if you're coming in... And you're necessarily pitted against the institution. It's like their way or the highway. And 
I think Diana didn't have the partnership. I think Charles was still very much it's I'm going with their way in no small part because he was going to be king. And so I think Harry alternately has decided that his relationship with his wife is more important than, you know, whatever family expectations that he has. And that's heartwarming. I think we all understand that is like the right move, especially, you know, I, 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 I don't buy the conspiracy theories. I never really went down the whole, like, let's investigate the circumstances of Diana's death. Um, me neither, but, but I do think one, it's a tragedy and two, I think you have to understand it as a, as both a culmination of just the, in the absolutely intrusive and destructive media frenzy around her and also her isolation and the lack of, um, support that the Royal family just absolutely abandoned her in a lot of ways. And it does seem like Harry is refusing to do that again. And I think you have to commend him for that. I agree. I agree. It's just like, what's the point of a rigid structure if it doesn't help you? I don't know. It's sort of like, doesn't help anyone sort of like what's the point it's it's interesting i um i definitely think there's just gonna be a full-fledged like relitigating of diana i mean we're already doing it we're we're starting it if it hasn't already started Mm -hmm. and i'm curious to see like how people's opinions change because i feel like the stuff that you just really know is like she was friends with elton john he wrote a song about he rewrote a song about her she was really famous like she like at the end of her life had a lot of boyfriends like just like things like that and I, I do think that, um, you know, I'm personally like, I've just been invested in trying to understand like, who is this person? And it's very hard to just like, this is like such an obvious thing to say, but I just feel like in this era of social media, are people try to seem personal or at least like authentic, even if it's, that's like the persona they're putting on. I think that the Royals are just like totally unknowable in in a certain way, like outside of, um, so like, like kind of like what their biographers say. And I just like, there's so much like bias that goes into that. A lot of my favorite parts of the Tina Brown books are when she was quoting from letters or diaries, because those I think are like the best window into, because people like write them in confidence or thinking it's safe. And it's just so funny. Like, I think that celebrities, whether you like it or not now, they, especially in COVID when you're not interacting with people, you like, you um, melt into like the persona you project in a lot of ways for, for celebrities. Um, especially the ones who don't have a lot of substance to them, like, like reality stars. And I, I think that I, I, mean, I just, it's interesting, like thought exercise to think about what that would have been like for Diana, who seemed to really crave like community. Yeah. The tricky thing about that is that to an extent, the Royal family is also pro- all projection. Yeah. You know, they talk about totally. it on the crown and the extent their survival has been to create whole personalities and characters and a, and a role that they play that they have to suppress all personal identity in order to be. And Diana wasn't willing to suppress personal identity, but I think another part of her tragedy is that, you know, because she couldn't get a, the love or the the freedom or the just like recognition as a human being within the family created an entire media personality that does sort of subsume her at some point. And you can kind of watch her become really, really, really invested in the media narrative, which what else are you supposed to do? I think (laughs) if you're not getting anything at home, but I do think becomes the question with a lot of truly uber famous people. And you and I talk about this, that at some point fame at that level is such a weird and specific phenomenon that it's really hard to tell where the authentic person starts or ends and the, the public persona starts. And, and that's when things get really messy but it's, I think the Royal family is like a uniquely challenging exercise in like trying to find the authentic because I, I don't know whether there's any there, there, or I yeah. think the, the, there is, is like not the complicated, interesting thing that we want it to be. I, it might just be as I think there's like a, there's a great speech in the coronation episode, I mm. think of Queen Elizabeth in the first season of the crown where it's like, she's a fairly ordinary person wrapped up in all the monarchy and celebrity. And it's, I guess it's just, it, it, I think it's totally fascinating for us to like try to do an exercise into 
understand these media creations. I mean, that's like what we do in a lot of ways. That's why I think that's why I'm so fascinated in the Royal family. It's not because I want to be a princess, but because I think this is just like a uniquely interesting sociological and media creation, but that might be all that it is. Right. Right. It's fascinating. I'm excited to hear everyone's responses to the Diana they see on the crown and, and this period. I'm also like, you know, we can talk about it another time. It's certainly less salacious, but I'm also curious to see, um, how people respond to Margaret Thatcher, um, Mm -hmm. as, as a famous woman. Uh, you know, I think a lot of watching of the crown is also just going to be really colored by the climate after the election. Cause it's about a time period that I said, like, I think has a lot of connections to what we're going through right now. You know, we have a pandemic that didn't have that 30 years ago, luckily for them. Um, but there's just a lot that predates the pandemic that I think is really interesting and has a lot of parallels. And I, I think that like, so I think the relitigation of, of the Diana, the queen and Margaret Thatcher will really be under this like cloud of, of, um, what's happening in the world right now. And I'm just like fascinated to see it play out. And I, I have to say, I've also just like personally enjoyed like this research study that I've been doing. So mm-hmm. I, I, rec- I recommend it, you know, like a little, a little history on your own can be very fun. I, I don't, I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but I've been enjoying it. And also just reading old Vanity Fair articles, going back to old Vanity Fair is one of my favorite things. It also is a sociological and media study all its own. But yeah. I think one of the exciting things about this season of the crown and also just, you know, this moment in history is that Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana at the same time in England is it's one of those things where like if you wrote a play with these two characters, it would feel like forced because it is such an interesting case study for, as you said, economics and sociology and media and everything that's and and gender for sure. And it it's amazing. It's kind of serendipitous that it happened in terms of like everything there is to unpack. Yeah, I know. It's wild. We'll talk about it more. Looking forward to it. Until then, be kind to yourself. Stay off Twitter, probably. Just, you know. Yep. Just do stuff that makes you happy. Have a great day. And uh, we'll be back next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 